Hey guys, welcome to the Swerve Church Podcast. My name is Danny, the lead pastor. I pray that the message that you're about to hear is encouraging, uplifting, and honestly challenging as well. I want to invite you to join us in person Sundays at 11 a.m. at the Swerve Hub at 239 Stanhope Street, or catch church online at 11 a.m. on our YouTube or Facebook page. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I pray that you're blessed by today's message and that it helps draw you closer to Jesus. Hey guys, last week we began a brand new series talking about love, sex, dating, and marriage. And uh, we're going to be working our way through Song of Songs. If you missed last week's message, I strongly encourage you to check it out as we laid a foundation uh, for what we're going to be talking about throughout this series. So I definitely encourage you to go ahead and watch last week's message, uh, week one of The Peasant Princess. All right, so if you guys are ready, we're going to dig right in. We're going to begin at the beginning, Song of Songs. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Throughout the book, the Shulamite woman, she's the most vocal. She speaks the most and is seen as the one who is the most expressive about her urges and her desires. And in doing this, we understand that this is good. In fact, it's more than good. I mean, for our boy Solomon, it's great, right? She desires intimacy. She desires the touches of her man. And in a covenant marriage, that's a great thing. Outside of marriage, there's a great restriction. But within marriage, there's great freedom. As God designed the intimacy and ecstasy experience in the marital bed to be pleasurable, enjoyable, and beautiful. There's three perspectives on sex. A letter A in your notes, sex is God. And this is the perspective that many in our culture and society have about sex. That it's a God that they worship. It's an altar they bring sacrifices to, their chief sacrifice being their bodies. And since it's a God, you give all your time, talent, and treasure to it. The purpose of life is to see how many people you can possibly sleep with, to accumulate your body count, go bar hopping to see how many people you can meet and shack up with, or end up getting so drunk high or twisted that you end up sleeping with someone and waking up the next morning not even remembering how you got there or what their name is. And for many people, this is their standard of life. And this is why you end up with so many sexually transmitted diseases, unplanned pregnancies, baby daddy and baby mama drama, and on and on it goes, right? The same is true if you call yourself a follower of Christ, but dismiss God's design for marriage and compromise in this area. This is essentially telling God that your desires, your passions, and your way is greater than God's way. It's saying that God is not God and sex is your God because you refuse to submit to God's pattern and design for sex. The second perspective is this, and you can write this down in your notes, letter B, that is that sex is gross. In other words, it's icky, it's yucky, it's taboo, close your eyes, plug your ears, we shouldn't even be talking about this in church. And this might be your perspective if you grew up in a church that maybe didn't talk about this topic very much, if at all. Sometimes this comes as a result of an overcorrection when it comes to the conversation on sex. And since we live in such a sexualized and perverse culture, you're taught that it's disgusting, so sex is disgusting. And if this is your understanding of it, then even when you approach sex within the context of marriage, there will be more than likely be a lack of intimacy, a lack of enjoyment, 
a lack of pleasure. But what I want to help you see is, uh, what I want to help you all see throughout this uh, marriage and, and what I think the book so clearly and vividly and colorfully paints is that letter C, sex is a gift. Sex is a gift given to us by God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. It's neither God nor gross, but a wonderful gift to be enjoyed, stewarded, and experienced within a covenant marriage between one man and one woman for life. Which is why we can celebrate the fact that the woman says, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Your caresses are more delightful than wine. By the way, the Shulamite woman in the, in the book is never identified by name. So for the sake of this series, let's call her Jasmine. Okay, so whenever you hear me identify her by Jasmine, you'll know that I'm talking about her, the Shulamite woman. So Jasmine goes on to say, The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. This communicates two things. And fellas, this is for you. First of all, he smells good. She says his perfume is intoxicating, which means my dude likes to shower and spray cologne. Fellas, hygiene is important. I don't know if you know this, but did you know that you can become numb to your own scent? <laughs> Scientists call this olfactory fatigue. Now check this out. Ladies, how many of you like a guy that smells good? How many of you like a guy that smells like a skunk fell into a trash can? None of you, right? So fellas, take a shower. Hey, go wild and take more than one a day just so that you can smell good. Invest in a good cologne. Don't go overboard. A little goes a long way. She says that he has an intoxicating scent. It doesn't mean that she's literally intoxicated and can't breathe and passed out because he has so much cologne on. Don't be like that old guy on the train that smells like he was baptized in a pool of Old Spice. Okay, don't be that guy. Secondly, she says that his name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. And this is speaking to his reputation and character. In other words, this is a man who is trustworthy, reliable, hardworking. I mean, this guy's a stud. Fellas, can the same thing be said about you? Single guys, are you a trustworthy person? Can you be counted on? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? Are you a man of your word? Are you plugged into your church and serving? Are you seeking God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What is your reputation among your friends? Are you the wild guy, the prankster, the never on time, never keeps his word, the backstabber, the jokester? The question that we can all take away from this is this right here, and you can write this down in your notes. Are you becoming the person, the person you want to marry, wants to marry? Fellas, do you want a loyal woman, untouched by any man, a devoted follower of Christ who will love and devote herself to you? Then become the type of person a woman like that would want to marry. You can't want that and then live a sexually loose life or live like a Casanova or swipe right on Tinder all day and not give a rip about your walk with Christ. Same thing with you ladies. Do you want an educated, successful man with a business sense, a leader, a loyal with an established reputation? Then don't drop out of school, stop sleeping around and having kids with a bunch of different men sitting on the couch all day watching novellas. Pick up your Bible, go to church and become the type of woman that the man that you would want to marry. Next, in, in, in the book, Jasmine's friends chime in, and we're going to hear their voices from time to time throughout the book. And here they say this in verse 4, We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. Here they chime in, and what they do is they affirm the relationship. They confirm that the relationship is right and good and beautiful. 
Jasmine and Solomon are two peas in a pod. They complement each other and their relationship honors God. Here's the question that this should bring up, and you can write this down in your notes. Do your friends and family support the relationship? In other words, do the people that love you and that know you and support you the most, do they agree that this relationship is good for you? Are they able to see what you see in the other person? You guys know this. They say that love is blind and that love will make you do the weirdest things. Well, if that's true, that means that sometimes you aren't the best person to judge whether or not the other person is right for you because you can't see clearly. And this is also why God has given you the gift of friends, of family, and a church family. If you're hearing from multiple avenues, yo, I don't know if this is the best person for you. I don't know if this relationship is going to bring you closer to Jesus. I don't know if this person is going to help you grow and flourish professionally or spiritually or emotionally. Then maybe you need to listen to the warnings as a gift from God to keep you from potentially heading down a road that will give you much heartache in the future. So next, Jasmine goes on to say this. It is only right that they adore you, daughters of Jerusalem. I am dark, like the tents of Keter, yet lovely, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me, because I am dark, for the sun has, gla- has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? I want you guys to notice how Jasmine describes herself in this passage. She says that her skin is dark. And the reason that she is so dark is because she was essentially taken advantage of by her evil stepbrothers who made her tend the vineyards all day. And this tells us a couple different things. Uh, First of all, more than likely, she comes from a poor family of farmers. Scholars believe that her family may have been hired by Solomon to care for some of his vineyards. So they were probably working class poor. Then on top of that, she's forced to work outdoors all day by her evil stepbrothers. This is literally like the Cinderella story, right? She's forced to do the heavy labor while the evil stepbrothers do the lighter work or they do nothing all day. And because of this, she's outside all day in the hot Mediterranean sun. And guess what? Her skin is dark. And what this communicates to us is that she's self-conscious about her appearance. In their day, the wealthier people didn't have to do the hard work and be in the sun all day. So especially the women, they were kept indoors and had lighter skin as a result. In those days, that would have been the standard of beauty. And she realizes that she doesn't meet the standard of beauty as portrayed or conceptualized by culture. The same still remains true today. In a world of influencers and picture-perfect bodies and unrealistic expectations, all of us, but especially women, are under the pressure of meeting a standard of beauty that is unattainable. She ends this section by asking Solomon to let her know where he's going to be in the afternoon. She knows he has to work, he has business to take care of, but she so desires to be with him that she is willing to meet up with him for a romantic lunch or some time together. And while she is comparing herself to others, and while she is self-conscious about her looks and her complexion, here's what Solomon, her beloved, thinks about her. He says this, check this out. If you do not know most beautiful of women, Follow the tracks of the flock and pasture, your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with a necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. 
Here Solomon affirms her by saying that to him, she is the most beautiful woman in the world. While she doesn't meet the standard of beauty of the rest of the world, to Solomon, she's a one of a kind, and he loves her sunburnt skin. And then he calls her a horse. Fellas, you might want to try that line out later and see how it works for you. Let me know how that works, okay? But he talks about her beauty is only accented with the jewelry that he's gifted her, meaning that his love for her, check this, isn't only stated, but demonstrated. He shows it with gifts of jewelry of gold and silver. Two things I think we can gather from this section. First of all, ladies, your beauty is not determined by the world's standard of beauty. So don't fall into the comparison trap of trying to look like America's next top model or thinking of yourself less because you don't look like the women that you follow on Instagram. Second of all, men, she needs to know that she is the most important and the only one that has your affection and your attention. She is your standard of beauty. And while there are a million chicken heads dancing and twerking online and walking nearly nude on the street, she's the only one that has captured your eyes and your heart. And as a result, because of the level of trust and confidence, safety is conjured and intimacy is created. And then we read this from the pen of Jasmine. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me. Spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. And then he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful your eyes are doves. And she retorts, How handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are cypresses. I don't know how much of this I need to explain to you guys, but... The trust, the confidence, and the compliments leads to intimacy and satisfying of their mutual love for one another. Notice how they compliment one another with their words. Words are so powerful. You can either build someone up or tear them down. And this is true of any kind of relationship, but especially true within marriage. Here, the words are being used to express their appreciation of one another. She calls them a cluster of henna blossoms in the, in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi was an oasis in the middle of the desert. And that's what their marriage and companionship feels like. That's what you want your relationship to be like. When you come home, you want it to be an oasis, not a war zone. And one of the ways that you can foster that is with words. And so the question that this leads us to ask, you can write this down, is do you use your words to build up or tear down? Where you see words of anger, indifference, or sarcasm, you will see a relationship and a marriage that is full of strife, separation, and frustration. But when you see words of love, concern, and compassion, you will see a flourishing, intimate, and love-filled relationship. For Jasmine and Solomon, what's the reward of their words? She says that their bed is verdant and describes a house of cedar, rafters of cypress. Let's just say they're not in the palace anymore. And what this is, is a portrayal of a return to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were in the garden, naked and unashamed. Next, we read this, and she says, I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And he responds, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. Here you can see her insecurities peeking through again. She says that she's like a lily of the valleys. In other words, she saw herself as a common flower, like any old flower that you would see along the road. There's tons of them. They all look the same. Nothing is special about any particular common flower. But 
being ever so smooth with his words, Solomon responds, yeah, you're like a lily, uh, but like a lily among thorns. In a sea of women, you are the most beautiful one. In other words, no one else even compares to you in my eyes. And as you can imagine, all this flirting, all this googly-eyed back and forth leads to the consummation of their love, which is celebrated and blessed by God because it is within the context of their marriage. And we read this. Check this out. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love, sustained me with raisins, refreshed me with apricots, for I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head, and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. She returns the compliment, calling him a unique tree among all the common trees of the forest. I'll let you use your imagination for what she means when she says that she sits in a shade and that his fruit is sweet to her taste. You figure that out. She describes how she wants to be embraced, and you can use your imagination for that as well. And then she closes out with the word of caution to the young women. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This is one of the most common themes throughout the book. Love, marriage, lovemaking, and passion is an amazing gift from God to be enjoyed, but it's to be enjoyed within the appropriate time. The world would tell you that it doesn't really matter, that our bodies are created for pleasure. So why experience that pleasure with just one person? Why do the marriage thing when we could just cohabitate, pretend like we're married, do married things without any of the commitment and without the covenant before God and others? And what God would say is you're putting the cart before the horse and you're missing out on the incredible blessing of living within the design of, that he's implemented. All of this stuff that we're talking about is extremely good when we follow God's timing for them. And so here's the question. You can write this down. Are you trusting God's timing? And if not, why not? What is keeping you from being obedient to God in this area? Why are you choosing to worship the created thing versus the creator God? Why are you so confident to put your faith in yourself over faith in God? What has so polluted your thinking and rationale to think that you know better than God? To round out our time and to prepare us for communion, as I was preparing for this message, I was asking myself, where is Jesus in this passage? And I think there's a lot of gospel connections that we can make. But the one that stuck out to me the most is in Getty. Jasmine describes her time with her groom as in Getty, which is an oasis in the middle of a dry place. In other words, as refreshing, life-giving, and rejuvenating. And it reminded me of some words of Jesus. He said this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus is promising each and every single one of us. For those of us that are tired, weary, worried, burdened, and weighed down by our sin and this world, he says to come to him. And when you do, here's what you'll find. You'll find in Getty. He says you'll find rest for your souls. Some of you are here today, and I've just described you. You're tired, weary, worried, and burdened. What you need to do is come to Jesus. If you're knee-deep in sin, overcome with guilt, regret, and shame, you're invited to come to Jesus. 
And when you do, what you will find is someone who is gentle and lowly, who is humble in heart. Jesus paid a tremendous price so that you can boldly approach God's throne of grace to find mercy and forgiveness. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, including those sins where we've used our bodies against his design. And when we distrust him with his timing, yet those sins, he died for them to pay one and for all the sin debt that we owed. And Jesus conquered the grave to release the grip Satan's sin and death had on our life so that all who call upon his name can have forgiveness of sin and new life. In short, so that you can have in Getty, so you can find an oasis for your weary soul. Here's the invitation for all of us today. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're invited into En Gedi through Jesus' finished work on the cross. If you are a follower of Christ, but you've been living in rebellion to God, you're invited into En Gedi by taking the trust off yourself and putting it onto Jesus. For His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Lord, help us to honor you with our relationships, God, I pray. For those of us who are married, may we have thriving marriages full of love, passion, and compassion. For those of us who are courting or dating, give us great restraint and confidence to trust you and wait for your timing. For all of us, I pray that we might find rest for our weary souls. Lead us to your Engedi, that we might find our, we might find our gentle and lowly Savior awaiting to refresh him souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, I truly pray and hope that you were challenged and encouraged by today's message. I want to take a second to invite you to join us in person. We're gathering this Sunday at 11 a.m. at the Swerve Hub, 239 Stanhope Street, right here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And come on over, join us, come to the Swerve Hub. Let's worship together. Let's get together. Let's worship God together. Let's learn and grow together. Let's fellowship together. Why don't you come on out and join us in person this Sunday?